Hello, you're listening to Coffee Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Bek, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our second, 72nd episode. The ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict has starkly manifested in rarely seen spikes in the energy price market. So today, um, it's all about energy. With great pleasure, we welcome back Vantana Hari to Kopi Time. She is the founder and CEO of Vanda Insights, a Singapore-based provider of global oil markets macro analysis. Vandana has 25 years of experience providing intelligence on the global energy markets to stakeholders in the petroleum industry, policymakers, and wealth managers. Vandana Hari, welcome back to Kopi Time. Thank you very much for having me back, Timor. It's uh, great to have you and what momentous times we're living through, Vandana. Um, we had you on Kopi Time back in July 2020 when WTI contracts were turning negative. So we have come a long way since then. And there is, of course, a lot to talk about the current juncture. But perhaps uh, we could start by taking stock of the energy sector during this pandemic. How did the supply and demand for oil, gas, coal, the overall energy sector evolve across the world during 2020 and 2021? So indeed, uh, Temur, to borrow your phrase, uh, a long way, but we have come that long way in a very short time. So we, in 2020, uh, the COVID and all the associated uh, nearly global shutdowns, as you might recall, caused an unprecedented crash in global oil demand. So uh, for the purposes of our discussion, we'll go with 100 million barrels per day, which is very close to where oil demand was in 2019. Now, we saw demand crash by close to 8.7%, 8.7 million barrels per day, year on year in 2020. Now, um, as COVID began to abate somewhat, the curbs and restrictions were progressively removed through last year. Uh, the global oil demand is estimated to have recovered by about 5.4 million barrels per day. So um, we have, a, of course, a big chunk of the 2020 uh, drop being made up, but certainly not all of it. Now, um, the real magic, if, if that's the word, is, is expected to happen this year, which is the rest of the demand that crashed uh, in 2020 comes back, but not just that. Uh, oil demand is expected to actually go back above pre-COVID levels. Sometime, you know, could be middle of this year or sometime in the third quarter of this year. So 8.7 million barrels per day crash in 2020, about 5.4 million barrels per day recovery in 2021. And this year on average, it could rise by another 3.7 million barrels per day or so. So we will go back to a level that is higher than the 2019 pre-pandemic numbers. Yes, that is the expectation, though a lot of uh, market participants and watchers uh, will tell you that we probably hit that level already uh, at the start of this year or will do so in sometime in the next few months. But in general, the consensus view is that uh, we'll definitely be uh, at pre-COVID levels, 100 million barrels per day, and uh, vaulting over that sometime in the third quarter of this year. 
Yeah, I mean, especially if I think about the US and India, in both cases, even the latest data suggests that economic recovery momentum is uh, pretty substantial, and those are big two chunky sources of energy demand worldwide. London, I'm going to stay with the last two years for one more moment, please. Uh, what happened with respect to investment and inventory? I know that with the green transition in mind, you know, banks have become tough on financing energy, greenfield projects, uh, and then countries have been making, you know, proactive strategies and pivoting away from fossil fuels. So that trend was probably there even before the pandemic. I mean, what happened through the course of the pandemic with respect to investment and inventory? So uh, COVID and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the clean air and the blue skies that uh, the world experienced in the lockdown period appears to have given a fresh momentum and impetus to uh, the global efforts. Uh, I, I should say global demand aspiration from you know, the public, the investment community, and uh, the oil and gas uh, community, the oil and gas major producers, refiners, also uh, joining in this whole groundswell of movement, as you say, the, a pivot from fossil fuels to, to cleaner forms of energy. Now, what has happened as a result of that is a dramatic drop in uh, investment in fossil fuels. Now, it, within that, of course, there's a, there's a kind of hierarchy as well. So we have uh, coal, which seems to be the, the most disliked, you know, right up there in, in terms of, of um, governments and, and the public in general and the investment community just wanting to cancel it out of our lives. Uh, but then for unfortunately, you know, that has then uh, percolated down to uh, oil and natural gas as well. So we have seen, and to some extent, you know, it is understandable because if um, investors and the oil and gas producers, whether you know you're talking of oil majors or independent companies or to even national oil companies, if they are going to shift their investments into newer forms of, of energy, then that money has to come out from somewhere else. And it has ended up coming out of oil and gas. So we've seen a dramatic drop in investments and which was a, a kind of double whammy because we saw a very similar slump in um, in funds being put into uh, finding and developing new oil and gas back in 2014 to 2016 as well you recall uh, prices slumped quite a bit so this is the second round that we have seen um, but it just seems to have a very different kind of momentum this time, you know, one that uh, doesn't look like it will slow, let alone reverse anytime soon. And uh, with respect to inventories, uh, are we sort of, you know, running thin on that or globally there is decent inventory? Yeah, so that's a that's a very critical point to talk about, and and one definitely uh, in the bullseye uh, of the of the market, especially. Uh, you know, when, when we are trying to assess on a day-to-day -day basis or short-term or even medium-term basis what market supply-demand fundamentals look like, see, when, when we look at inventories, and, and here we, it's, we're mostly talking about the OECD world, which maintains, which is required to maintain a certain level of um, oil in storage as emergency reserves, uh, typically minimum of 90, 90 days worth of net imports. Now, these inventories also became a sort of 
target for OPEC plus um, as the organization was trying to, to figure out how to rebalance the market. So the, the rebalancing for OPEC was not just about um, curtailing supply and, and having supply demand match each other as, as the world came out of the, the COVID crisis, but also they wanted to reduce substantially bring down the inventories that had built up through 2020 and global oil inventories uh, had swelled to unprecedented levels. So what OPEC plus did was they set a target of the average of OECD inventories over 2015 to 2019. They deliberately left out 2020 because you know that was uh, an outlier number. So the the target, this target of OPEC Plus, was actually met, achieved uh, within the first half of last year. So 2021, early 2021, OECD inventories had already dropped to uh, below their five-year average of 2015 to, to 2019. But then what happened after that was OPEC plus got in onto a roadmap of very cautious, conservative easing of its cuts, deliberately keeping the market a little bit undersupplied. And we can talk a little more about, about OPEC later, but what um, that resulted in is a consistent, persistent drop, drawdown in inventories throughout last year. And it was expected to reverse this year, but uh, you know, thanks to all the disruption in, in Russian oil supply, demand bouncing back a little bit more than uh, had been expected. Probably we are still in that situation where even in this quarter, global oil inventories are continuing to drain. Now, essentially, that makes markets very nervous, especially if uh, in cases of supply disruption, because inventories are your very essential buffer, you know, in the event of supply shock or supply disruption. And when these inventories are running thin, you know, that becomes an additional factor for bull runs in the oil market. Hmm. So tight supply, low inventory. I can see the makings of a perfect storm, which now brings us to the present. Uh, London, of course, you know, Russia is front and center of all the discussion right now. So let's talk a bit about uh, their uh, situation. Um, yeah. So Russia's economic isolation that is in the making through these wide ranging sanctions that have been put in place and perhaps more sanctions are coming. This could potentially choke off a major global source of energy. So underscore for us how important Russia is to the global market of energy. Yes, absolutely. Very vital. So just to put that in perspective, currently Russia is the second largest oil producer after the United States with an output of just over 10 million barrels per day if you're looking at crude. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia is a very close third behind, behind Russia. Now, the world's second largest exporter of crude is Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia being the largest exporter. Russia currently exports about 5 million barrels per day of crude. Uh, but in addition to that, it also exports about 2.8 million barrels per day of refined products. And these are all the, the crucial major refined products the world uses, diesel, gasoline, and fuel oil. If you look at natural gas, uh, Russia is the second largest natural gas producer after the US, and it is the world's largest exporter of natural gas. Okay, um, so 
both with respect to gas and oil, you know, important marginal uh, producer. Uh, so now, some scenario analysis. Um, what is your thought in terms of you know supply of energy from Russia? They sell a lot to Europe. They sell quite a bit to China. Um, can things be diverted from one place to the other? Uh, can you turn off gas pipes? I mean, so that's sort of questions that I have in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a major disruption in Russian oil supplies has already begun. Now you might say, but but wait, there is no sanction against. Russian energy exports uh, from the Western allies. Um, there have been, there were some discussions over the past weekend, the, the US uh, threatening that it is looking at uh, imposing an import embargo on, on Russian oil. And you know, it, it's, it's important to make a distinction here. So one is the US could say, we are we're gonna try and put a ban on Russian energy exports. You know, that would be very similar to what the US has done with Iranian and Venezuelan oil exports. But, um, you know, that's considered, regarded as, as extremely difficult to, to implement, you know, not to mention that it would be absolute Armageddon in, in the oil markets. Um, the other way is the US could say we will sanction the import. So we'll not import and then try and bring uh, the EU on, on uh, board with that as well. So that has not happened. But what has happened is a slew of economic sanctions and especially sanctions against the Russian central bank, major Russian banks that have already been rolled out by the US and, and EU in response to the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And what that has resulted in a couple of things. So first of all, that has already disrupted, uh, you know, the entire financing that that goes uh, on around um, oil supplies. You know, from the time they are lifted to to uh, boarded on a on a ship a tanker to uh, reaching the end user. Uh, a second phenomenon that's happening has already happened in parallel is that is a, a self-sanction on the part of banks, on the part of buyers, traders of, of Russian oil, shipping companies. And of course, you know, um, quite understandably, insurance rates on, on cargoes uh, and loadings um, of, of Russian oil have also shot through the roof. So if we look at March and, and you recall the, the figures I gave you earlier about Russian exports, about 5 million barrels per day, let's say, of crude, 2.8 million barrels per day of refined products. Now, if you just look at March, the current estimates are, if things remain as they are now, about half of Russia's crude exports may not reach uh, you know, the, extra, the overseas markets. Nearly all of Russia's refined products may not reach the market. So we're looking at a big time uh, disruption already uh, in, in Russian supplies. We have seen Russian crude um, euros, which is a benchmark crude that goes uh, into the European markets, trade at record discounts and yet not uh, find buyers. So, so Russian oil disruption has already started happening. Russian gas supplies, uh, so far from, from what we can see are being uh, maintained as per normal uh, to Europe. And you know, every day we have statements, especially from Gazprom, which is the major gas supplier that sort of reassuring statements that we are continuing to maintain normal supplies. 
But I think herein lies uh, perhaps another tool which could be absolutely devastating for Europe. And we did see that um, threat come out uh, overnight with the Russian deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak saying that if the West proceeds with embargoes, import embargoes on, on Russian oil, uh, Russia would have to look at curtailing gas supplies to Europe. So that is the absolute nightmare scenario. To, to your point, can Europe replace easily the gas? You know, the short answer to that, and, and quite a final answer is, is no. So it, you're about 45% of European gas imports come from Russia. And a big chunk of that comes via pipelines. So a pipeline essentially just ties the, the consumer as much as it does the, the supplier to, to that trade. You know, it's not very easy to divert, uh, whether it's for the, for the seller or for the buyer, to other markets. And I think that's going to be uh, probably the biggest threat ever uh, that will be hanging over our heads until the Ukraine crisis is resolved, because Russian gas supply disruption to Europe is essentially going to mean lights out for the continent. But then I have uh, two follow-ups, one a technical follow-up, one a financial follow-up. The so technical follow-up is, can you really turn off a gas pipe? I mean, isn't it the nature of a gas pipe that you can't really turn it off? So explain to us how Russia can sort of, you know, unilaterally stop supplying gas and what happens to all that gas. I mean, do you have to mothball a gas field? And the financial question is, every day, Europe, owes Russia hundreds of millions of euros for importing all this uh, gas. Uh, with all these sanctions, how is that payment going forward? I actually am curious to figure out how that is working and I don't know if you can shed some light on that. So first the technical question and then the financial question. Yes, so when it comes to gas and for that matter, even oil, just, you know, you can't just turn it on and off like like a tap. Uh, but then again, we have seen producers do that in the past, uh, especially with oil. You know, when we talk about OPEC, non-OPEC uh, curtailment of supply, they do switch off. Uh, it's, it's not easy. It is a, a time-consuming process. And uh, equally on the other side, when you're trying to reopen, uh, restart a, a field, whether it's oil or gas, also you face uh, major problems. And you know we're already seeing some of that. If I may just digress uh, briefly, in in a lot of OPEC countries who that are being uh, finding it hard to bring oil back in line with the increasing quotas because you know the reservoir pressure just mm -hmm. drops and you know if if you, the a field is shut for maintenance let's say for a few weeks or a month it's still manageable but if it's been shut for two years it becomes very very difficult to achieve the same kind of rates of flow of of oil and gas and then the infrastructure problem is also on the receiving end so if Europe were to say, for instance, that, um, okay, if if we lose Russian supply through pipelines, we'll just import more LNG. But then do you have that capacity at your LNG import terminals, the regasification ca capacity, and then the capacity for pipelines to send out that, that regasified LNG to uh, the consumption centers? You know, again, the answer to that is no. So, your point about... Go on. I, I was just going to sort of, you know, summarize all that. But it sounds like it would be very, very costly, both for the Russians and the Europeans, to take a very drastic measure in terms of supply of gas. 
Oh, absolutely. I think the damage in this war is going to be almost equal on both sides. And a, a part of me says, I think there isn't even a side. In, in a way, the whole world is going to pay uh, the cost of this war, you know, what with inflation and, and the kind of uh, oil and gas uh, prices that we're all having to bear now. So on the issue of uh, the financing, the the payments, uh, any idea how that is happening every day right now, despite all these sanctions? Yeah, your your question is probably far more important than my answer is is going to be. Unfortunately, I don't have a very clear view of of how it's going to happen. But, you know, clearly Europe will have to find a way to continue paying uh, Russia. It is traded, it is paid for in US dollars. And, uh, you know, I would imagine that uh, the U.S. and and not just Europe, mind you, the U.S. is also continuing to import Russian crude, about 700,000 barrels per day of it. So the U.S. also needs to continue paying and uh, must continue paying Russia for for the imports. So I I can only imagine that uh, the U.S. and the EU allies will find a way to to ring fence that, that channel of payment. But I'm afraid, uh, aside from, from that, I don't have any more insights on that. Okay, so I'll, I'll come back to the geostrategic issues with respect to Germany and U.S. shale and Iran and all that kind of stuff later. But uh, one issue is the energy trading market itself. A huge market, there are oil and gas uh, spot and futures traders everywhere, including Singapore and New York and London. Billions of dollars of uh, transactions happen every day. Uh, are there losses and credit events happening around the ongoing spike in volatility? So absolutely. The losses are already biting. Um, companies are facing major margin calls from, from brokerages, from exchanges. Although uh, there's no uh, entity that has uh, buckled under in, in recent weeks, but you know that is not to say that uh, unfortunately, that that's not going to happen in, in the coming weeks, especially if this crisis drags on for longer. See, European uh, utilities, gas and power utilities were already in the eye of a storm. If you recall the energy crisis of, of late last year, there were a few bankruptcies, a, a few companies just shut down, though, you know, it it tended to happen um, on a level where, you know, the companies that were relatively small, uh, that were the victims of of that crisis. But now it's a double whammy for these companies. So if you look at gas prices, for instance, yesterday, so I'm now talking about uh, Monday, the 7th of March, uh, Dutch TTF gas prices, which is uh, you know a, a trading hub benchmark wholesale gas prices for for Europe, at one point traded as high as equivalent to six hundred dollars per barrel. Can you imagine? So when you have price gyrations like that, they trigger major margin calls. Now, what is what a margin call? Simply put, it's it's uh, the security money that utilities have to deposit as a guarantee that they will be able to deliver, that they will deliver on their forward contracts. Now, when uh, when, when, when prices uh, swing this widely, and especially when they go up, when they spike, uh, utilities have to top up those funds. So sometimes companies will enter new hedging positions to offset those calls. 
Sometimes that's just not possible. Sometimes that's even, even risky to, to do so. So companies also end up borrowing more uh, from banks. We saw a, a host of German utilities, for instance, just at the beginning of January, I, I suppose, you know, little did they know, they were, they were coming out of the, the energy crisis uh, hit of late last year. Uh, perhaps little did they know that they were going to just hurtle into another crisis. But just at the beginning of January, we saw um, German utilities uh, take out new credit lines uh, from banks. Then um, we have uh, a whole gamut of, of other participants or players, even speculative traders around all these uh, trades, you know, in, in throughout the supply chain that they are speculating on the price moves. And of course, you know, as we have, as history has taught us, um, a lot of these uh, speculative traders, unfortunately, do get burnt uh, when we have uh, absolutely uh, wild sw price swings like we're seeing now. Yeah, truly, truly extraordinary. I mean, a lot of these hedging strategies are based around models that find their estimates from historical data. <clears throat> and once you have you know, three, four, five, maybe even 10 standard deviation away from the mean type events happening, none of these models can handle those things. Uh, so yeah, the pain would probably be substantial. This sort of volatility is unprecedented. Uh, but then I'd like to shift to some questions on dealing with this crisis. Uh, the first one is a blunt one. Why can Germany, which is so beholden to gas supply from Russia, simply just restart its uh, nuclear energy plants. I mean, it has the skills and material in the grid, right? So why can't it just get going? Yeah, so to put it uh, equally bluntly and succinctly like your question, Germany regards nuclear power as dangerous. So it has even opposed uh, the European Union proposals in, in recent weeks and months to, for the technology to be a part of the mix, um, you know, especially as in the transition to cleaner energy, the options are very, very limited. Now, what Germany wants to do is it wants to increase its reliance on natural gas as a cleaner alternative till it has you know, other, other cleaner, greener energy alternatives uh, available. Um, we have seen uh, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which was uh, which completed construction from, from Russia to Germany at the end of last uh, year, but um, unfortunately has gotten uh, tied up in this uh, Ukraine mess. And even before that, it was uh, pretty controversial. And you know, it's always been opposed by the US and a, and a host of uh, European governments as well. But so, so this is Germany's game plan, right? In, um, it had been veering away from nuclear energy for, for decades, you know, the, accidents, the Three Mile Island accident in the US, then we had the Chern Chernobyl in, in 1986. And the final nail in that coffin was uh, the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster in Japan in 2011. That was when Germany said, this is it, you know, we are not going to not, not only not going to build any more nuclear re reactors, but we are also going to decommission the ones uh, we have. So in 2021, nuclear power accounted for about 13% of German electricity generation, and it came from six nuclear plants, of which three were switched off at the end of last year. That leaves Germany now with three nuclear plants, which are going to be turned off um, through this year, 
I think the last of the plants to be to be turned off uh, in December this year. Now, so there is a very, very strong popular public opinion um, against uh, nuclear reactors. But, uh, you know, to the question that perhaps could they at least suspend, uh, you know, they could still stick with the phase out plan. Uh, but you know, just in in view of the current circumstances, could they make uh, could could they delay it? So that's also seems quite difficult now because in in recent weeks those have been the conversations that have been happening uh, in Germany between the government and the utilities uh, that run the nuclear power plants, and the utilities have said that sorry, it cannot be done. You know, they say that the uh, shutting down process because they were following this uh, roadmap set out back in 2011. And they're saying that the shutdown process is, is, has progressed to the extent that any, any reversal at this point could become a major security risk. And then of course they're saying that we don't have, uh, you know, we haven't secured the, the fuel either. So it seems very, very difficult for Germany. You know, it, it has painted itself into a corner as far as uh, you know, trying to get out of at least the the, the current uh, crisis is, is concerned. Now, of course, that's that's quite a contrast from neighboring France, which is you know not only which is modernizing its old reactors, but also building new ones. But you know, we'll perhaps leave this uh, for another day. But just tells you how how divided and fractured the European Union is when it comes to coming up with. Uh, cohesive, coordinated uh, energy policy. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, I feel that this is going to uh, run that uh, continent, the region, and in turn the world into more bigger problems as we uh, hurtle down this path of energy transition. Okay, Vandana, so nuclear energy, not on the table as much as we'd like it to be. Europe is divided on these issues. So what about temporary relief? US shale, Iran, Venezuela, what's your view on that? Yeah, so, so these appear to be some of the safety valves, uh, but neither of them is close to a perfect one, uh, let alone one that is ready because you know we need the oil right now, or some would say yesterday. So um, Iran can supply an estimated additional 1.3 million barrels per day of oil to the market if the US sanctions against its oil are lifted. Now, the, of course, negotiators from US and Iran and from the other uh, signatories to the 2015 nuclear deal have been very hard at work uh, over the, actually negotiations began last April and uh, they have continued and, and have taken on a, quite a momentum in, in recent weeks uh, in, in Vienna, but a deal has continued to elude them. Now, of course, we've been hearing and it's, it's been, you know, the market has been optimistic every now and then in recent days that uh, a deal seemed to be within reach, but, you know, there have been major disagreements between the US and Iran throughout the negotiating process and uh, some hurdles uh, still remain. The latest one appears to be Russia, actually, which is a, a, one of the signatories to the 2015 nuclear deal, uh, has demanded written guarantee from the US 
that Russian trade with Iran and particularly military equipment and technology will not be impacted by the US sanctions against Russia on account of Ukraine. So that seems to be the latest setback to the deal. So it's it's like, you know, when it happens, it happens. Uh, you know, we can't really hold our breaths for it. So if you look at US production, that plunged quite dramatically in 2020 from an all-time high that it had hit uh, in just a year before of about 12.3 million barrels per day. So in 2020, we saw it come down by 1 million barrels per day. In 2021, another 140,000 barrels per day. Now, this year is expected to be the turning point. So if you look at the US Energy Information Administration's uh, projections, it is expecting an 800,000 barrel per day year on year recovery uh, in US production, reaching about 12 million barrels per day, they think, uh, this year. But there are question marks uh, around that. There um, are quite a few industry uh, participants in the US and outside, uh, and industry observers, who doubt that US production will come back up by as much as 800,000 barrels per day this year. If you look at the shale sector, which is accounts for 72% of US crude production and 100% of uh, the growth uh, in US oil output. We see, of course, a continuing mantra of cash discipline uh, within the, uh, the shale players. So as they have been reaping more profits through last year, and uh, you know, of course, continuing to this year, they have been uh, returning more money to the shareholders. So they've been increasing dividends, they've been conducting share buybacks, and they have been paying off debt. So essentially doing all the right things um, as far as their lenders and shareholders' demands are concerned. Now, the CapEx uh, is increasing. A lot of them are modestly raising their capital expenditure uh, plans for this year. But the argument there is that a lot of that uh, increased funding will be taken up by a rise in costs. So material costs, um, as well as manpower costs uh, for the shale sector have gone up uh, considerably. So that's, that's the US situation for you. If you look at Venezuela, also reeling under US sanctions, uh, also imposed under the uh, Trump administration, uh, starting in January 2019. But even before the sanctions, Venezuela's uh, oil sector was uh, in a shambles. So look, first of all, it looks a bit difficult for me uh, for the US to just remove uh, Venezuelan sanctions in one go, especially given uh, how much time and effort it has taken them to try and uh, revive the Iran nuclear deal. So and even if they do, even if they ease on Venezuelan sanctions, you know, given the state that Venezuela's oil sector in, is in, I wouldn't expect perhaps more than two, three hundred thousand barrels per day increment from from Venezuelan oil. So as things stand now, there isn't really an obviously obvious and immediately available relief valve for uh, you know if if one were to contemplate uh, a. a persistent uh, drawn out uh, Ukraine war and a persistent uh, disruption of Russian oil supply. Even if we scan the Gulf horizon, say Kuwait, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. 
So let's talk about uh, OPEC plus and it's, it's worth talking about it, it separately. So what we have seen with this alliance is that since the middle of last year, they, they drew out this roadmap for a, a very conservative, cautious 400,000 barrel per day uh, increment uh, such that in monthly increment in their production targets, such that they are able to unwind all the remaining cuts. They had made nearly 10 million barrels per day of, of cuts uh, in at the peak of when COVID hit in 2020, unwind them completely by September this year. Now, we have seen the alliance being uh, very resistant, almost loath to deviating from this uh, trajectory. Even at the height of uh, the energy crisis late last year, you know, U.S., other major consuming countries were knocking uh, OPEC Plus's doors. You know, can you put more oil into the market? And they said, sorry, no. Now, host of reasons for, for doing it. But, you know, one of those is um, as the de facto leader of, of this alliance, Saudi Arabia, has uh, its energy minister has said time and again, that you know they they prefer not to uh, react with or respond with more oil to the market uh, when there are speculative spikes in oil prices and you know they could argue and they have argued that uh, the run up that we've seen in, in prices through the since the start of this year is uh, is mostly fear driven it's a fear premium it's speculative not an actual change in in supply fundamentals to which you know i would disagree certainly a, a lot of the market participants today would disagree but you know that is what it is they they just don't seem to be inclined to move away from that uh, path. Now, another big problem for OPEC Plus is that they have actually been falling way short of that target every month. So the, the target itself has been uh, rising by about 400,000 barrels per day, uh, exactly by 400,000 barrels per day each month, but they have been falling short of meeting that target. And in the latest months, ever as much as 1 million barrels per day. So that tells me that OPEC Plus is almost, uh, in a way, intent on leaving the market a little bit short supplied, uh, you know, ensuring that inventories continue to drain because they have been projecting a considerable build up in inventories through, through the uh, rest of this year. The, the other problem that they're facing, of course, is that a lot of uh, the members are struggling to revive output. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the reservoirs lose pressure, the uh, infrastructure is if it's not been maintained, uh, you know, for lack of funds, which was indeed the case in a lot of countries through 2020, you know, you, you're just not able to go back up to your pre-COVID production capacities. And that means a lot of members are underperforming versus their quotas. Now there is a handful of OPEC plus producers and concentrated in the Middle East. So you have Saudi Arabia. So we'll leave Russia aside for a minute, obviously, uh, but you have Saudi Arabia, you have Iraq, Kuwait, UAE, that do have ready spare capacity. But until OPEC perhaps goes back to the drawing board and rejigs the individual member country quotas, these countries cannot just go and you know um, violate their quotas and, and pump more. So that's that's a problem for OPEC plus as well. You know, arguably they could suspend the quota system entirely for a short period of, of time. But again, you know, as I say, right now, they just don't seem inclined to do anything. 
Okay, this is all very grim, Vandana. So I'm going to ask you the trillion dollar question. How high can oil go? So we have seen uh, $200 a barrel uh, number popping up in, in recent days. We had uh, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak warning oil could hit $300 a, a barrel. Um, now, of course, he was he was wanting for his threat and warning to be effective. He said that would happen if uh, the US and EU embargoed Russian uh, oil imports. But, you know, I would, I would stay away from predicting an oil price. And the reason for that is we just in our lifetimes, we just haven't seen a situation like this where potentially 8% of, of global oil supply uh, could be locked out, and uh, a significant amount of gas supply could be could be locked out, for which there's absolutely uh, nothing to offset it. So, you know, how do you even begin to price in that kind of a disruption? And you know, Armageddon. I might have used that word before in the oil markets. Oh gosh. All right. Uh, well, well, we'll have to keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. But clearly, the scenarios that you're painting are very worrisome. Uh, one big picture question before we wrap up, Vandana. Uh, what will be the legacy for energy policy from these momentous days? So I think there are some huge lessons to be drawn. And um, I would hark back a little bit to covid the energy crisis of last year, and now, of course, this Ukraine crisis. First of all, uh, energy security. I think um, you just cannot uh, overestimate the importance of governments, um, any the the industry, and you know all the other stakeholders. Uh, in this whole movement of energy transition, you cannot underestimate the importance of securing energy supply first. Related to that is I think we need to take a really close, hard, dispassionate um, look with uh, tangible numbers as to what is the oil and gas supply that we will need in the coming years through the transition and into the utopian world of you know, minimal fossil fuel use? How much of oil and gas will we actually need? And then tie that back to how much investment do we need to continue making in oil and gas? from um, you know to ensure that we have adequate supply otherwise you know we are at the risk of bigger more frequent supply shocks and and price shocks now when you look at alternative energies you know of course hydrogen but hydrogen is still a, a lot into the future it's not really commercially viable yet you look at renewables all good we are also in the danger of rushing into a very simplistic, uh, but a very dangerous solution in our minds that, oh, we'll just re replace all our fossil fuel use, especially in the transportation sector, which uses most of the liquid fuels um, with electricity. But, you know, without asking ourselves, where will that electricity come from? You know, do we need to, how much renewables are good? They are rising very fast. 
from a very small base, though very soon, if not already, they're going to hit it, hit their capacity. So I, I go back to saying, you know, oil and gas are essential. Um, we need to keep that firmly in view. We need to make sure we make continue making enough investment because uh, jeopardizing the world's energy security and now all the more so with you know we, we are still vulnerable economies as we come out of the COVID crisis we just cannot afford to jeopardize energy security. Absolutely no room for complacency. Uh, Vandana Hari thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you very much for having me my pleasure Tamor. Thanks to our listeners as well. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. This is Martin's last episode producing Kopi Time, and I can't thank him enough for his support over the last two years. I wish you the very best of luck on your journey onward, Martin. Daisy Sharma and Valapli also provided production assistance for this episode. Kopi Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 72 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.